You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick old trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drunk. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. And kick old trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. And kick old trouble out the door. Kick him 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 out the Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. This is the second last Radical Australian, no, not for all eternity, but just for this year, 2021. And we have a very special guest, our wonderful producer, the extraordinary Kelly Whitworth, put her hand in the barrel and fished out Dr O'Connor. Hello, Dr O'Connor. Hello, Dr Toscano. <laughs> It's a doctor fest. <laughs> now, Adele, do you mind if I call you Adele, Dr. O'Connor? That's fine. That's Dr. fine. Toscano. Oh, you can call me Dr. Toscano. Okay. All right. <laughs> now, gone through the formalities. Now, Adele, we interviewed you a number of years ago and uh, we had to take it down off the uh, podcast's because you were concerned about certain things, because you were about to go somewhere where I think it could have been uh, detrimental to your health <laughs> if you'd mm. been interviewed on 3CR. But uh, we've done all that now. Now, Adele, when did you start on this journey? Five years ago, roughly, yeah. Five years ago. And uh, mm. t- tell us... What, what what this journey is all about? It's a PhD that I've now completed. Mm-hmm. I'm the current president of Indonesia, who's now in his second term as, as president. Um, and relating his role as president to oligarchy and populism. Right. Well, that's a, an exceptionally deep subject. What interested you? in this particular subject, you know, I thought maybe you would stick to the hummingbirds of New Guinea or something for a PhD. No, no, just the complexity of the topic. I thought it would be a challenge and uh, relevant to what was going on over there at the time because he was um, very popular when he started out. Right. And unfortunately, as time progressed, uh, his popularity waned somewhat due to some of the decisions he made as president. Yes, but I think this this PhD was much, much more complex than just mm. the one man, wasn't it? 
Yeah, it was. So, yep. so what was the when you started? What did you hope to achieve? I just hoped to achieve. The starting point was finding out why he was so popular to begin with. Um, so that was a, a boiled down to um, doing research on his background when he was um, mayor of Surakarta in Indonesia, that's the province of Indonesia, on the island of Java, and um, why he was, after that, elected as the governor of Jakarta. And he was extremely popular amongst the people. Um, but he hadn't been dubbed a populist at that stage because the concept of populism was more renowned amongst the European scholars rather than... There were a few looking at populism within the geographic um, geographics of Asia, Southeast Asia. Um, so I just thought there was a knowledge gap there and it needed to be explored and also looking at that, that concept in relation to oligarchy which is quite um, the two concepts together when you look at them in terms of presidential leadership can become a bit um, ambiguous if you're examining those concepts together could you, you explain could you explain for our listeners what do you mean by oligarchy? Basically, oligarchy goes back to the writings of um, Aristotle and Plato, who were writing all those years ago in BC times. Um, basically, I came to the conclusion that nothing much has changed since those times with oligarchy and how the unequal distribution of income occurs within society, um, how there are ways that the oligarchs get away with wealth accumulation through taxation and so forth and um, slavery, which is still thriving today within the world. Um, it's just become more complex worldwide because populations have expanded all over the world and governments have become more and more complex. There's just layer upon layer upon layer, so i looked at the role of bureaucracies, and because Joko Widodo was dubbed a technocrat populist amongst all the other populist labels that are out there for leaders, and but not just leaders, it's um, political parties and social like grassroots organisations come into the equation, and all this I saw is relating to what's happening now in Indonesia, so... It's just a progression of, of those early writings and ideas, Plato, Aristotle. And then you've got the whole notion of democracy. That's sort of like... I didn't want to focus, make that the main um, component of the thesis, um, but it does come into the equation with Indonesia, particularly since uh, the fall of Suharto in 1998 and what's um, happened since then with leadership in that country, um, but the majority consensus is that um, democracy within Indonesian society, and of course there are different variants of democracy, um, it has waned somewhat, particularly since the second term of Sustilo Bambang Yudhoyono's presidency. He was the previous president and he was president of Indonesia for 10 years. 
also corruptions and other issues. So it's an amalgamation of all these factors right. combined that I looked at. It's very complex, and I had to delete a lot of the material I had, um, even with the oligarchs, because there's um, different strata of oligarchs and oligarchy within the world and within Indonesian society. And for example, you've got the Chinese oligarchs who, under Suharto, they had no role in the political domain whatsoever. Um, and this anti-Chinese sentiment came to the fore uh, during the Wododo um, presidency in his first term with the um, oosting out of um, the governor of Jakarta at the time, Ahok. Uh, so there was all these sub-lays and right. intricate going on, and yeah, mm. it just goes on forever. You can study it yeah. for a thousand uh, years. You know? see, uh, unfortunately, as you know, Australia still thinks it's attached to Europe but geographically. It's yeah, not. It's not next to right. Indonesia. So mm. could could you? I mean, Indonesia. It it it's the world's fourth most populous state, isn't it? After uh, was it India, China, the United States, and there's Indonesia. Yeah. So it's a huge and what it's about what fifty, sixty kilometres. The nearest point I think is West mm. Papua from, from Australia. So uh, that's right. Yeah. And uh, I think you're very. Um, uh, astute picking this particular topic. Could you give us maybe the next few minutes just a a thumbnail sketch of uh, history uh, of Indonesia, maybe from the the initial the um, Islamic traders that came across and then colonisation. Oh, yeah. Just to give, because yeah, yeah, because most people have no understanding mm. when you talk about Sahara, most yeah. people wouldn't even know who he mm. was anymore. Yeah, that's right. So basically the former colonial um, nation-state of the Dutch who were... It started off with the VOC, that's the um, Dutch East Indian Company, and they would um, basically steal the resources of Indonesia. It was known as the Spice Islands and coffee and spices and other... Minerals, and then there was the discovery of gold and copper in um, West Erie and Jaya, which is now West Papua. But that was a big draw card, um, <clears throat> and the Dutch were still in control at that stage. Um, that was in, those minerals were discovered in the 30s. Um, by mm. some so so when, when, when did Dutch um, colonisation begin? Because this is, this is a history of centuries, isn't it? It goes back centuries. Well, it, yeah, there was different variants. Like I said, it started off with the the VOC, the, that company, and there were oligarchs operating. Yeah, but how long ago? Just to give people an idea of the six, about six hundred years ago. Yeah. So the Dutch had been in Indonesia for mm. about six hundred years, right? So it was one of the yeah, but not not they weren't controlling the administration at that stage. Right. The Indonesians they still had their um, different um, r- regimes within like kingdoms of different areas, so it's not all one nation-state to begin with. Mm -hmm. That was forced upon them when they got their independence. Um, And so you have all these different tribes, ethnic groups. Um, You had the Muslim traders come over. That's when Islam was introduced. It was predominantly Buddhist-Hindu. Like Bali today is still reigned by the um, religion of um, Buddhism. Um, so you had the Dutch traders and the Islamic traders and the Chinese also. I, I read a lot of history about the Chinese in Indonesia. 
So there were all these different ethnic groups and religious groups and land disputes and foreigners taking the resources of Indonesia. And then that went on for quite some time, hundreds of years. And then the Dutch actually... It was about 300 years ago when the administration of the Dutch sort of took over the set up government within Indonesia and then you had the educated uh, Priai, who's a, that's a class of um, predominantly Javanese educated. Um, yeah, so there's this whole diversification. You had the administrators and solidarity makers and Sukarno, he... He came to prominence as the one, basically, to lead Indonesia into independence. In He was jailed in the 30s, and uh, you had the Japanese who came through in the 40s, um, and that sort of resolved a lot of the colonial issues. You had the War of Independence between 1945 and 49, um, where the Dutch tried to come back after the Japanese uh, were defeated, um, and the British also came back to to take Indonesia again. But of course, because they were better organised and they had a skeleton of a of a military operating, because they had weapons from the Dutch, uh, from the Japanese. Sorry, they left weaponry there, and they started to group together the military, and so that's when the military of Indonesia started to become strong from that point on. There wasn't really an independent military existing prior mm. to, to 45. So it's an evolution. Um, everything sort of domino effect was happening. And finally they won their war of independence, the Indonesians, and that was um, sanctified, I think, 1949 in The Hague. They were officially given their independence and able to set up a nation-state of their own under Sukarno, the first uh, president. So he reigned until uh, roughly 68, where Suharto was um, the main military leader at the time, and it was basically a bloodless coup. They got rid of of Sukarno, and um, the Communist Party was destroyed, and there was uh, the killing of, I think, uh, ministers under Sukarno and the, yeah, it was like, oh, Sukarno's group is behind this and that's how Suharto came to power. And then from that point on, it just gradually descended into a complete totalitarian dictatorship or authoritarian. There's different labels again put on Suharto. Yeah, he created economic wealth, but at a big cost to a lot of the Indonesians and Great for trade, though, for um, foreign trade that was occurring. I think it went from 2% GDP Indonesia in uh, just before Sukarno was boosted out to 10% GDP mm-hmm. uh, the following year when Suharto got in. Right. So that's indicative of, of, you know, oh, this guy's in, he's going to be safe, he's a safe bet for for foreign investors to come back to Indonesia and invest, and right. the Communist Party is destroyed. So it went hand-in-glove with the U.S. Um, modus operandi of, of destroying communism and, you know, the Cold War that was happening with Russia at the time in the 50s and 
Yes, it's so not, complex. Yeah, it is. Mm. The, but there was a profound loss of life over a few month period, yes, wasn't there? That's right. What, what, oh, for sure. What do they say? A million, two million people were killed within yeah, eight very, week period. Some say a hundred thousand, up to three hundred thousand, a million. There's variations on that. Mm. Yeah, it was went on for about two years, from well, sixty five into late sixty six, perhaps. Mm. So I've, yeah. I assume. With your doctorate, you just mm. sat at home looking at a computer. You didn't do any field work, or if I, no, no, or I if I, have I got it, yeah. if I got it wrong, Adele, what, what did you mm. have to do? I had to go over and interview people, so that was difficult as well. Hang on, um, hang on, hang on, hang on. What year was this? Uh, that was late two thousand nineteen. You went to Indonesia. Yeah, for three months. Mm-hmm. Didn't, didn't anybody kind of think that you were there? For nefarious purposes? Oh, definitely. There's, um, they've got a big network of people who go around keeping tabs on you if you're a foreigner over there to see what you're up to, especially if you're doing anything political. Mm. So I was very open from the start. I didn't have anything to hide. and I didn't need to hide anything. I was only there to seek knowledge. And uh, under the tradition of Islam, they're very, um, you know, progressive, the the Sunni strand, that is not the more fundamentalist strand. Mm. They seek knowledge. They, you know, it's a big thing over there to to get an education. So it's not like I was like, what is she doing? She shouldn't yes. be here. Or, oh, yeah. So, so, what, never, so mm. what type of preparation did you just arrive, or did you have interviews lined up, or did you just, just? No, I had one contact. I met a man who came over to Australia three, four months prior to me going over there. Uh, he was in the government. So when I got there, I contacted him and... Was he, he, surp- was he, was he surprised to hear from you? Um, You're not sure? Uh, <laughs> no, I couldn't huh. work that out whether he was... He was expecting me, though. I didn't right. tell him that I'd be coming over and doing right. research. And right, right. Yeah, so I met with him and he didn't consent to an actual interview, I had to go back to his office and uh, he wrote out some answers, but he answered most of the questions to do with um, the president Mm. and other people. He put me onto a few other people, so it was just word of mouth. They call it a snowball effect when you're doing research. Right. So I was fortunate, but there was a lot of waiting around. I ended up interviewing 15 people. I wanted My target was at least 20, so it wasn't too bad. Were these, were these um, senior members of the bureaucracy or the government, or were these just... Uh, some out- were. Some were. Some were, yeah. Others were a few from um, NGO groups, a journalist, uh, yeah, different people. Majority knew, had met, President Widodo or had had some dealings with him within the government, so right. I think I was quite fortunate as to how it all panned out in the end. No, so I, don't, the end I, I don't think you were fortunate. I think you were persistent and brave. There's a difference. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of waiting around, but patience is a virtue, as they say, and it's true. It does pay off. You have to be really determined. Right. But that's an essential component of the PhD because... You have to have original material. You can't just rely on secondary sources. Yes. Yeah. So, hmm. so when you spoke to them, what did you say your project was about? 
what you have to do now, you have to do it really, it's formally done, so you have to go through the uni, fill out all these forms, consent forms, you have to go through the ethics committee, it's quite a taxing process, but again, you have to just keep at it. So you have to have all of that, uh, I think two forms ready, they've got to sign it before the interview happens, you know, occurs and... Mm-hmm consent to the interview and then if anything if they change their mind they're allowed to say no I don't want to be part of your project anymore blah 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 but that wow. didn't happen I didn't insult anyone mm-hmm. at least I don't think I did <laughs> I think they would have told you Adele <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure about that the Javanese are very um, you know very careful <laughs> they don't show their real true right. feelings most of the time yeah right. they could have thought this is a a nasty little pest. The sooner I <laughs> get rid of her, the better. Yeah. Did, did you did you attract any unwanted attraction? Do you think when you were yeah there? yeah a couple yep. What do you mean yeah yeah? You want to go into that or not? I was pretty full on. I was being interrogated informally, not within an office or anything, by one of the um, intelligent agency people. Mm, right. <laughs> Let's put it that way. That went on for quite a while. It was like there's no escape. That's it. <laughs> Well, every you day know, they'd pop around and see what's going on. Well, not every day, but maybe three, four times a week. For the three yeah, months so you were there, three or four times a week you had to deal with yeah. intelligence. So what, what did you do? Did you use... Well, actually, no, it was after, um, uh, it was after President Habibi died. That's when it started. Mm. Mm. Yeah, he died um, while I was over there. He was the... Sec- uh, he was the third president of Indonesia, and um, he died in the hospital, and I was right there, and I thought, oh, this this will be a great way to make some contacts with the the people from the government, because they're all visiting him at the hospital, it was a 10 minute walk from where I was staying, so I'd pop down and (laughs) (laughs) I'd hang out with the journalists there, the bunch of young journalists, the Indonesian journalists, they're all trying to get interviewing ministers and attorney general would rock up and... And Adele would rock up and... <laughs> yeah, I'd hang around the hospital I mean, like I'm, a weirdo. Yeah, yeah. yeah but you're not an inconspic... I've met you many times, Adele. You're not inconspicuous, mm. especially in Java. Mm. No, wonder yeah, they, right. no wonder they started yeah. talking to you, wondering what's all this about. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, through that I got to meet journalists who were covering stories. I got to go to the um, parliament there through a friend. I met a, a person. He he really didn't say who he was working for, but <laughs> <laughs> sky's the limit, you know, that's what I thought. <laughs> he could have been, I still don't know to this day who he is. I'm still in contact with him um, via WhatsApp, so that's all that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so got pretty interesting. Yeah, did, did, you, and, did, um, you, did you feel... Your safety was an issue at any stage? Well, I know a bit of karate, so... <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that, that I have this natural ability and I could use it any, anywhere or at any time, that sort of reinforced my security. Yeah, but no, I wasn't really... I would look out for people following me in the streets and I didn't see anyone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't... I think I, I think I'd be paranoid if I was being interviewed, interrogated every every few days by the Secret Service. 
obviously yeah. they were trying to find out whether you were real or not, obviously. Oh, no, his main concern was whether or not I was involved in the West Papua um, uh, movement because yes. there was a lot of stuff at that time as well to do with West Papua. Yes. Yes. And that was his main concern. He was trying to get this, oh, you know, are you part of this? I said, no, I'm not. I'm not doing anything on West Papua. I'm separate. Yes. This is a separate topic. Yes, yes. It's interesting because well, so. when we interviewed you about five years ago, we mm. looked at things and you rang up you know, kind of desperate a f- few weeks later wanting the podcast taken down. Yeah. I, I understand why because, as you said, there's mm. a wide intelligence there. So you reckon that as convener of the West Papua Rent Collective, I shouldn't go to Indonesia? Well, <laughs> you probably wouldn't be allowed to. <laughs> After the airport, you'd be sent back, I'd imagine. I'm sure you'd be on some sort of a list, wouldn't you, Dr. Toscano? <laughs> oh, I don't know, Dr. O'Connor. <laughs> you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't give him my name in exchange for you to get out of Indonesia. Sorry to bruise your ego, no. <laughs> <laughs> so you finally got back to the uh, I, to Australia. Just in time before COVID outbreak occurred, so they checked the timing was pretty good, yeah. Well, you did well. You got to Indonesia mm. just before yep. the president died. The president died. You used that as a stepping stone to get more interviews, and then you just got back before COVID <laughs> broke out. That's yeah, that. I did a... I was a bit stupid with that, the death of Habibi, because all the politicians and all the top brass rocked up to his funeral. What do I do? I I chose to stay outside with the people. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of going into where he was being buried, I would have probably met all the politicians in one hit. They were all there, Megawati and SBY and Joko Widodo and, yeah, ministers. And I thought, what? What happened to me that day? I don't know. I was in a daze. I think I got a bit of sunstroke. And <laughs> yeah, but there were thousands upon thousands of people who turned out to Habibi's funeral. It was unbelievable. Mm. It went on for hours all day. It was quite a sight. I filmed most of it on my uh, phone, so I've right. got the footage. Yeah, it was just incredible. Mm. Absolutely incredible. So, so he was popular. Yeah. Oh, he was indeed. Yeah, because he, he got the ball rolling in terms of setting up or implementing the um, so-called new democracy at that time after Sahato and he was appointed by Sahato to replace him. He was the uh, Minister of uh, Technology because he was uh, educated in Germany and he was in the Sahato cabinet for years. Um, But yeah, no, people ended up liking her baby, even though he only lasted for about, I think, 18 months as president, mm-hmm. because that was just prior to the first elections being run, and even then the, the president wasn't voted in by the people. Um, it was just parliamentary vote, decided who the next president was, and that was um, Abdurrahman Wahid. He was voted in after a baby, but not by the people. It was just a party election. It wasn't right. a presidential election at that stage, yeah. Right. So you get back to Australia, you've got all this um, theoretical work and all this practical work. Um, mm-hmm. So this is, is this when the hard work begins, putting it all together? Yeah, it's a jigsaw puzzle, yep. It is a huge puzzle. So how, how did you approach it? Well, of course, I started with a the theory, looking at populism. That's just a mammoth task in itself. There's been so much written on populism, especially over in Europe. It just goes on and on and on. 
So I tried to avoid Ernesto Lucklau. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He's one of the first pioneers. Well, there were... No, that's not true. There were a bunch of people who had a two-day conference over in England. Um, and the product of that in 69, two years later, was a book on populism. And they were looking at... I read that whole book. It's fascinating if anyone is interested to know more about populism. So they put it together based on all the history of Russia and the European states. Uh, it was just, I thought, wow, there's so much to this. Um, yeah, so it goes back, and there's uh, Lackler, who was writing 85, 1985, um, and his wife also contributed to that publication, Chantal Morse. They, they actually based their analysis on the role of the individual within society. So it was pretty much uh, Freudian analysis, mm -hmm. psychoanalytic. And there were a lot of theories at that time floating around to do with um, the group, group think and how people respond in a group, how they look up to a leader, how they want a leader to take them through. Um, and then you've got all those other layers on that, like with racism and um, fascism coming in. Like Hitler, he was a populist, fascist, authoritarian. So there's all these different variants of leadership and populism. Um, and then you've got the party populist. And then there's the left and right divide within that whole political frame and centrist thinking as well, which is more neutral. Mm-hmm. So it just goes on and on and on and on. But that book, that um, major book that was published in 1969, yeah, it's pretty profound. I think there's about 22 different uh, authors that contributed to the book. So they each wrote an article um, on their United States uh, populism. Um, yeah, it just, it just goes on and on. Mm. So you've got this theoretical background, you've got this oral material that's written down. So yeah. how, how do you go about melding it, bringing it together? So what I, what I did with the populist um, section, I thought, well, which po whose writings can I relate to Joko Widodo's populist way of leadership? So the closest I got was a, a scholar called De La Torre, he's Latin American and he's published articles and books on Latin American populism. Um, and he came up with technocratic populism and technocratic leadership was actually quite a profound um, scholarly subject matter, I think in the 70s. I would have liked to have looked into that more, but I just I, I didn't have time to fit mm -hmm. everything in. So I abandoned that and just focused on De La Torre and a few others who I thought that that's the one for that describes Jokowi's populist um, appraisal. Plus, you've got his socio-cultural. So I combined the two, which is a man called Ostigai. He's still writing today. He's um, published books and articles on. Um, that form of populism, the socio-cultural, mm -hmm. 
and it talks about the flaunting of the high, the flaunting of the low, and if you relate it to Joko Widodo, he would be classified as more akin to the flaunting of the high, where they, they're pretty um, polite in their approach to their own sense of populism and connection to the people, whereas Prabowo, who was Jokowi's uh, oppositional figure in the 2014 Indonesian election, he corresponds nicely with the flaunting of, of the low, which was similar to Donald Trump's approach on presidential leadership, you know, where they use, I don't know, their terminology is not very nice, um, mm. they're racist, of Paboa's and very anti-Chinese at that time. But they play that card so they get more votes at the election. It's all just right. one big fraud, basically, yeah. And the other thing is, what what did you find out about the role oligarchy plays? Look, I've been told, I don't know if this is true or not, obviously I, mm. I need to speak to somebody who knows what they're talking about, but I've been told mm. that basically Indonesia is run by four or five families and they take turns and... Running the place. Yeah. Is yeah. Well, the thing with oligarchy in Indonesia and the whole notion of studying oligarchy as opposed to populism, you're looking at a 50, like so many articles on populism and books. Oligarchy, not so much. I was actually finding it hard to get a lot of material on oligarchy to study. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did come across some really good articles and books, read them thoroughly. Um, a lot of the oligarchy relates more to America, American society history, but I didn't want to veer too much off my topic, um, so I just picked out the fundamentals that I thought was relevant to what I was writing about. Um, but what I concluded with Indonesia, and again, I couldn't I really wanted to go into more depth, but unfortunately I just didn't have the word limitation. It didn't allow for it. What I wanted to write about was three major groups of oligarchs, which is the pre-Bumi, they're called. That's the native Indonesian oligarchs, those who are born in Indonesia and are not Chinese descent. And then you have the Chinese oligarchs within Indonesia who live there. And then I was going to actually talk about the uh, Chinese government as a third layer, but I couldn't do that. So I narrowed it down just to the pre-Bumi oligarchs and then divided it up into... You've got the party oligarchs, the media oligarchs, and those that are within social organisations. Um, so I looked at them... There's been one prominent oligarch that has been one of a good friend to Jokowi from their friendship dates back to the 1970s, but I didn't find a really strong pattern that, oh, he's been supported all the way through by oligarchs. There's mm-hmm. just one minister who's still in his cabinet that has been solid, a solid rock for Jokowi, um, and they did go into business at one stage. Uh, his name is Luhut Binza. Uh, his surname's quite complex. I don't have the brain Don't worry. Don't worry. I think everybody's interested in following up. It's not the P, but they know him as Luhut. Yeah, so let, but, yeah, I want to go mm. back to, to this oligarch. So are, there yep. this, are there distinct ruling 
clicks in Indonesia. Is, is that what you found, or, or what is it I found, more complex than that? It's more complex. What I found, you do have ministers who are now oligarchs, and I did state in my thesis that there has been an increase in their role as oligarchs within the cabinet across the board to the point where the ministers, some of the ministers own major companies in Indonesian society and they are determined to destroy the environment. I mean, there's no other way of putting it. Mm. They claim they're not aware and there's ways around it, but there isn't when deforestation is occurring on a mass scale and so you've got them, you've got the Chinese, I wanted to write about them but I couldn't, um, they're, so they're the millionaires, the ministers in his cabinet, mm-hmm. but the billionaire oligarchs are the Chinese Indonesian oligarchs who don't, do not partake in the political process, they're still out, out of that political domain and they're like, there's an academic over in America called Jeffrey Winters, he writes about oligarchy. And he looks at the role of actors within the oligarchy frame rather than just oligarchy because you've got to distinguish between oligarchy and the oligarchs as well. Mm. So the, I discovered that it's actually, if you go to the Forbes uh, 5, I think it's 550, the, the wealthiest 50 within Indonesian society are predominantly Indonesian Chinese oligarchs who are billionaires. Mm. Whereas the ministers... Either they're hiding their wealth in overseas or offshore accounts somewhere, but um, their wealth is nowhere near as, as prolific as the Chinese um, oligarchs residing in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And they, they don't really, like the media, the journalists don't cover what they're up to. Um, they can also own rainforests overseas. There was one billionaire Chinese who was responsible for the absolute destruction of a of a, uh, a rainforest, an old growth rainforest in another country, for example. So what I realised was starting the pictures starting to develop. Yeah, you've got your Indonesian oligarchs, and they could be ministers or just businessmen, but you've also it's like a, a world domination thing going on with oligarchs all over the world, where they meet up at certain places or they support each other and. There's crossovers, there's co-buying of companies like with Shell and BP and it's it's a global uh, oligarchic domination of the resources that exist or within the world and they're just going about doing what they've always done, getting in there, getting what they want, getting richer mm. and the cycle's just gone on and on and on, yeah. Did you, did you find any Australian connections? Well, when I interviewed um, second in charge of the Indonesian Corruption Commission at that time, um, he told me that they were, they were investigating... He was about to be sacked. That, that whole uh, Indonesian Corruption Board was getting kicked out by... Well, there's differing stories as to President Jokowi ordered that or whether he couldn't... He didn't have the power to overthrow those in the... Indonesian parliament, but he told me, yeah, there was... The oligarchs had infiltrated Australia and there were connections between Australian oligarchs and Indonesian oligarchs, but he didn't name names, yeah. Mm. 
Well, that's interesting. You actually got to speak to the second head of the Anti-Corruption Commission there. Yeah, yeah. He was very open. Mm. He had nothing to lose. He was mm. leaving anyway, getting yeah. out of Indonesia. He saw it all and he had enough and that was it. Yeah. It's, there it's, were death threats being made to him, his family, yeah. people around him. Yeah. One of the people who was working for the Indonesian Corruption Commission was uh, acid was thrown in his eye one night by mm. someone on a motorbike. He lost his eye. That was a big story as well. It was horrible what was going on. Mm. Well, we don't so, have that. we don't have that problem because we don't have an anti-corruption commission. That's, <laughs> Isn't that funny when you think about it? Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. So they were getting too close. Obviously, they were closed down. So. The thing was, it was um, the ministers of, of the political parties who were worried, who had my, the, the most to lose, because it's true, there's no doubt in my mind that it is true that President Widodo was serious about um, trying to put an end to corruption in that country, but he just couldn't. The power above him is just too strong. Mm. Mm. There's too many people involved and too much money. And, for example, Donald Trump, I don't know if you know this, but he set up a golf course in Bali. He owned a golf course. And mm. He's got outside pressure as well. Right. Um, and connections being made of, of the world, world Oligarchy Society. That's a good name. <laughs> <laughs> the World Oligarchy the Society. Yeah, w- it's w- like w- that. Wuss, wuss, W-O-S. Exactly. Wuss, <laughs> wuss. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting how these people have mm. acquired so much wealth. Uh, and, and, and do you think mm. this is what dominates, like here in Australia, the parliamentary agenda, the fact? Uh, it's, it's dominating it all over every country now. It's mm. like a massive octopus that grown bigger and bigger and bigger and it's just it's there was another study I was looking at they were in America looking at the um, funding that goes towards um, election campaigns by oligarchs and how they just do it all the time and whoever's got the most money will win the election yes so who funds who funds the elections in Indonesia the Hello? Yeah. Oh, I think we almost lost connection there. So who, who, oh. who funds the... Um, who funds the... Who do you think funds elections in Indonesia? I'd say the oligarchs do. Right. Well, they pick they pick horses and then fight yeah. amongst themselves. Yeah, that's right. Um, they don't have to disclose what they're contributing to a campaign, but there's... I mean, you know, it doesn't take much to... To work it out what's mm. going on because as time progresses money for elections and election campaigns is you just need so much money the politicians and this is where I made the link between oligarchy and populism during it at its highest peak during election campaign mm. and they get the people on board and it becomes a big circus almost and and now the the way uh, election campaigns are run in Indonesia is almost identical to the ones in America now, where it's all, you know, fun and the carnival's atmosphere and mm. yeah, and it's all just a show, really. Do you think the same things happening in Australia? 
I'd say it's, yeah, it's the same thing, maybe on a different scale, but it has to be a similar thing going on. Mm. So what was your conclusion at the end of all this? Personal conclusion or as an academic mm. analysis conclusion? Uh, both. Let's do the academic first and the personal second. In terms of academia and what... It's like, okay, I started reading about populism and I knew from the start it was a load of BS, really. Mm. And that didn't alter my view by the time I finished reading. It's just like, I hate it now. I hate populism. I hate reading about it. And it's just... Because there was this whole notion that it's fleeting, it's fleeting. It kept coming up in a lot of the writings. And it is true. It's just there and then it's gone. It's just like for show and that's it. With oligarchy, um, I thought I'd learn more about oligarchy itself, but there's not much to that. They just have ways of hiding their wealth, um, uh, getting away with tax evasion, um, setting up... They just keep perpetuating their wealth because they can do it. Mm. And they help each other out. So... The overall conclusion was, oh my God, is this what the world has come to? I was a bit disillusioned and, and um, like, is, is this it? You do all this research and you find out what, what a disgusting world it's become because of greed. It's basically just greed. I can't put it down to anything else. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it is greed when you think about it. You, you can only sleep in one bed That's, every yeah. night, you know. But some of these people have got so, so much property they can actually... You know, they could sleep in a different property <laughs> every night. Exactly, yep. Uh, yep. It's extraordinary it's unbelievable. Power. Yeah. So, so why do you think this has happened, not just in Indonesia, but it's happening in this country? You got any ideas? I, I was looking at the difference between the role of the individual in all of this, the oligarchs, mm. as opposed to the system. Mm. Now, if you look at capitalism, you look at socialism, you look at um, communism states, it's happened in all of those societies. There, there's, everything's geared toward these people, this tiny 1% of people making all this profit. So the conclusion I drew was the system, whether it's capitalism, socialism, communism, or well, communism hasn't really been played out according to the Marxist tradition. It's like, okay, surely things have to change for this, situation not to occur anymore and it's not changing it's not changing it's just going along the same way and it's yeah disappointing more than anything do you think this is what's driving the um, climate emergency and the increasing pauperization of large sections of the world society definitely dead about it yeah Mm. because i was looking at the whole issue of um Lance Jokowi came up with this brilliant idea, brilliant idea, mind you, but not practical. Land uh, redistribution, giving out land certificates. And what I wanted to know was, well, does this... Him going to villages, this was before COVID hit, is it changing anything? What actually is it doing? Is he giving anything back to the people or is he just giving out a bit of paper to each person saying, here's a land certificate? Well, I must say, I found out that in theory, it's a great concept, and he probably thought it would change something, but in, in reality, it doesn't change anything. Because now there's all these land disputes happening because you've got the big companies coming in and 
eroding people's livelihoods and he also set up social uh, forestry programs. Those two programs are under the banner of agrarian reform and no doubt he thought, oh, this is a great idea, but it's not, it didn't really change anything. The people didn't get anything out of it. They just got shuffled up into the forest to, to sell, set up markets. I mean, that's probably not a good idea to encroach into forests like that anyway. Mm. And ecotourism, and I don't know, it's like, can't people see, okay, you might have um, technological advances, and he's very good at that too, setting up permit systems and moving the bureaucracy along, and that's why he was very popular as Mayor of Surakarta and Governor of Jakarta, because he managed that. But it's not... It's not altering the fundamentals of society, which is inequality between a large portion of society and the elites at the top of the oligarchs. Mm. You know, it's just, it doesn't. He didn't really, or he hasn't altered anything. I mean, you made a, an interesting statement at the beginning of this conversation that uh, mm. things hadn't changed from the times of Plato and Aristotle. Mm. Do you, right. do you think the situation we find ourselves in the 21st century is an inherent human con condition that we can't change, or do you think that change is possible? I think both is possible. But what, what it's that whole notion, what, it's the ones at the top. If they don't change, nothing will. Because they've got the power now mm. through money and resources. They're, they're the puppet masters. And if they don't alter their thinking and say, okay, enough is enough, then nothing will change. But sure, protest is good. Mm. People have to keep trying to get out there and voice their opinion and trying to change it at the grassroots level. Mm. Look, I'm... Um I'm very proud of your achievements because um, I had a chat with you a few weeks ago once when you um, got your PhD and uh, something remarkable happened. Uh, it went to three examiners, is that correct? And uh, And how many changes did you have to make to your submission? Zero. How many? Zero. Zero. Yeah. Zero. So yep. this is, you handed it in for the, usually you get all these red lines and redactions and well, I was advice. Expecting that. Yeah, I was expecting that. And you got nothing, no changes. No, nothing, I couldn't believe it. Is this, this is what they call an honours PhD. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. Right. Well, you know, maybe maybe you just bashed them into submission with the your reasoning and the, the rationality of what you also, you, you've been. It's been suggested that it be republished as a book. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So how how will that happen? Well, that'll happen down the track. I've got to wait until it's, um, the PhD is um, put out on the World Wide Web. Which mm -hmm. That should be in about twelve months from now, I think. Right. And then after that time, I can do that. I can publish it as a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And obviously, um, the government's knocking at your door. The Australian government is an Indonesian exp expert offering you hundreds of jobs. Would that be incorrect? <laughs> I, 
doubt that would ever happen because uh, it's been made now obvious that I'm anti-oligarch, so that would not no. be good for the Australian government. So you've put all this effort and energy for the last five years. It's a full-time yeah. occupation. You've come up Definitely. with, with uh, interesting findings uh, that yeah. Uh, yeah. academics who've been in the field for decades weren't able to fault. You've been offered uh, the fact, the chance to have it published in book form. And, uh, but yes. I must say the main examiner, mm. he said if it's to be published as a book, there would have to be some editing done on it, of course. Mm. Mm. And yeah. he gave his recommendations, so I'll take that on board for sure. Yeah, but what I'm, what I'm saying is you've made an invaluable contribution to knowledge, knowledge that, mm. not just general knowledge, Knowledge that's very yeah. useful to us as a society because we're right next door to Indonesia and obviously what that's happens right. there has profound yeah. implications here. But it's not going to lead anywhere, is it? It's, pardon, what was that last? It's, it's, not, it's not leading to a job or people utilising your... Um, well, it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. I did it because I wanted to do it. I was interested in President Widodo and how things panned out. But the thing was, I took a gamble because when I started that, it was at the start of his presidency. Mm. And I was really hoping that he would do the right thing and be a progressive, you know, sustained democracy, but it hasn't worked out that way. And and now things have changed again um, with the pandemic over there. That's just mm. messed everything up for him because he had this big project going on that he was going to uh, set up a new capital in Kalimantan um, and because of the COVID pandemic that hasn't happened and you know I found out also that that's exactly what Sukarno wanted to do and for some reason that didn't happen either when he was president so Mm. it's almost like the curse of the golden city you know yeah (laughs) <laughs> they're trying. <laughs> they're trying to dump the old Jakarta that yeah. you know, pretty ramshackled and polluted, and set up this wonderful new city, and it hasn't happened yeah, yet. Yeah. So. I think that's mm. what, that's what happened in Burma. So, yeah, and in, and in uh, Brazil with Brasilia. Yeah. Mm. That's right. Yeah. Now, all I can say, Adele, look, it's been a pleasure yeah. talking to you over the last fifty-four, fifty-five minutes. I think okay. you've made a very yeah. valuable contribution. Not just to academic theory, but um, Australian society in terms of our understanding of what's going on in Indonesia. Mm. And um, all I can say is, if, if anybody meets you, they should call you Doctor O'Connor, or maybe. Right. W- what about Doctor Adele O'Connor? Would that would that suit? That's fine. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. Have you got any plans for the future, academically? That is. Mm, maybe go back to Jakarta and write a few books. They've got an election coming up in 2024 if everything's okay, if the pandemic isn't as prolific over there. Mm. Um, we'll just see what happens. See what happens. Well, thank yeah. you Well, thank you very much for your second appearance on Radical Australia. Um, okay, it's been an honour to have known you over the years and I congratulate you on finishing what I knew was a I've known has been a very difficult and arduous process. All the best for the future. Thank you, Dr. Toscano. Thank you, Dr. O'Connor.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.